On the Empire Podcast this week, we're all over the small screen as Bob Whitey drops by to talk about his new creation, the Nick Frost starring Mr. Sloan. And we also have a lovely natter with Orange as the new black stars Jason Biggs and Taylor Schilling. All that and the usual movie news and nonsense on the only movie podcast that went to a McBusted concert and was mildly surprised by the number of movie references from Back to the Future, of course, and Total Recall. Total Recall in a McBusted concert. Basically, a giant inflatable trio of breasts descending from the ceiling like Pink Floyd on Mars. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt. Welcome to the Empire Podcast. As ever, I'm joined by three of my bestest jumps in the whole wide world who'll be joining me for the next hour or so of full-on film chat, as long as their mums don't call them in for tea first, obviously. They are Ali Plum, who had a birthday this week. Happy birthday, Ali Plum. Yay! Who well celebrated done. by fulfilling a lifelong dream. He took place in a live game in the office of Party Quirks, from whose land is it anyway? Uh, was that fun for you, Ali? It was the most fun I've ever had in my life. Yeah? As you can tell by the tone of my voice. I can tell. You seem so excited right now. Exactly. Happy birthday, sir. Thank you, sir. Uh, we're also joined by Helen O'Hara, whose party quirk is talking about dragons and elfish. <laughs> That's a lie. I don't actually speak elfish. We're also joined by Phil DeSemlion, whose party quirk is leaving immediately if the party isn't subtitled or in black and white. Isn't that true, Phil? Isn't that true? That's true, isn't it? That was subtitles. And then, of course, it's me, whose party quirk is reducing wonderful, rounded, three-dimensional human beings to one basic defining characteristic for the purposes of a recurring gag, and not a very good recurring gag at that. But hey, nobody's perfect. Uh, okay, so let's get on with the show. Uh, first up, your questions, which you've been lovingly sending into us via the magic of the interwebs. Here's one from at Tommy Pocket via Twitter, who asks, With Under the Skin playing with a live score at the South Bank, didn't know that very interesting uh, which film would you like to similarly experience Helen you and I have had experience in this, in this very area very recently yes, very we recently have. Uh, both of us went to the Royal Albert Hall last oh, week uh, yeah. to see two different films with a live orchestra I went to see Gladiator I went to see uh, Star Trek with uh, Michael Cicchino in person introduced by Simon Pegg and then some guy called J.J. Abrams dropped in on his way back and this is a quote from work now <laughs> most people are you know when they're going back from work you know they've had a busy day at the office or they've been stacking shelves or they've been down the coal mine he was directing a Star Wars movie so I guess he wins really I think but, he yeah. does yes uh, was anyone there for uh, Gladiator? Um, actually no so uh, I guess you win thanks oh. brilliant okay. um, did Lisa Gerrard not sing? was she not part of the, the thing? sorry yes she oh, okay. was the singer but I meant like in terms oh, of right, okay. introducing and so on um, yeah. Yeah, it, was, it was absolutely fantastic actually they had to subtitle the film though because the orchestra and choir yes. uh, and about eight drum kits were <laughs> so loud at times there was one drum which was literally the size this podcast studio which they used for the sort of the heartbeat uh, as they're going into the big final fight in the in the Coliseum um, it was incredible uh, I, I think it's a fantastic thing actually to, to watch films with a live score I've also seen also at the Royal Albert Hall before I saw the Lord of the Rings. I've also seen Donnie Darko done with a, a live score in mm. in uh, Kensington Gardens, which was amazing. And it's a it's a really interesting thing. It makes you appreciate the music so much yeah. more. The only thing about seeing Gladiator specifically is that Hans Zimmer stole from himself for the theme to Pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> and it's like it's a big thing in Gladiator. You forget what a big part of Gladiator that mm. theme was. And it's such a huge part of Pirates that I find that really distracting. But it's a brilliant, brilliant score. So, yeah. you know, I got past it. Were you I, uh, entertained? <laughs> I was. Thank you. Why weren't we invited? Uh, I don't know. I, I, I took my wife, who's a massive Star Trek fan. So oh, okay. that was great. And um, the conductor 
came out for the second half because they split the movie. Did they do this with Gladiator? Yeah, they did. They, they split the movie into two halves because obviously if an orchestra play for two hours, their hands will fall off and blood will start going everywhere, which is never a good idea. Uh, and they, they, they split the two halves. They came out for the second half in a, a Starfleet uniform. <laughs> like this esteemed conductor whose name I've forgotten. He's so esteemed. But apologies uh, to that man. Um, but he was amazing. He comes out in a, Star, a Starfleet uniform. And it was great because it's been a long time since I saw the Abrams, the first Star Trek. And it, it just reminded me how good that film is and Peg said beforehand in his introduction he said for me music is about 51% of a film's mm-hmm. success and I think Giacchino's score in it's Star- stunning phenomenal it's part, you know, his, his main theme uh, when, it, when it first played and the orchestra played and you know, it came over and the, the Star Trek logo comes up on screen after the opening sequence with the you know young Kirk uh, George Kirk and uh the, and spontaneously, the entire uh, Royal Albert Hall just burst into applause. Yeah. It was a real goosebumps moment. It was, it was like, oh, this is this is amazing. It's a loveless film. So, what colour were the uniforms? Were they like blues and yellows, and were the strings red? And they died halfway through. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> comes out in a red shirt, gets decapitated by a a, a rogue double bass. <laughs> I love this joke that's been doing the rounds on the internet recently, where it's the picture of a stormtrooper firing, and a picture of a red shirt falling over, and it says the stormtrooper. <laughs> Missed as planned. <laughs> the red shirt died anyway. The red shirt died anyway. <laughs> Amazing. It was phenomenal. A phenomenal night. A phenomenal thing. Um, and it's ruined me, frankly. I don't think I can see any movie now unless it has a live orchestra. Absolutely. I think I, I was just going to say, I mean, for that Giacchino score, I, I bet the timpanist would be in, in yellow because he's definitely not expendable <laughs> for that one. Um, I also actually saw um, the Pixar live uh, concert wow. last year which they did a sort of they did a medley of most of the themes of the Pixar films but when they were they I think up was in the second half and I remember saying during the interval they better just play the whole of married life or I'm I'm storming the stage and happily they did uh, and it reduced the entire audience to floods of tears interesting enough Chikino came out um, after I just remember this because I was uh, he came out afterwards he didn't conduct the orchestra for Star Trek but he came out and conducted them uh, through about a five minute piece from Dawn of the Planet of the Apes so he gave us a little sneak preview and I was thinking to myself is he going to stick around and just do like a greatest hits medley and if he does if he plays Married Life uh, you know mm-hmm. what's it going to be like to watch 10,000 people just sobbing <laughs> silently into their popcorn um, but it was an amazing experience but the question is <laughs> uh, what film would we like to see the experience uh, so you guys got anything else I saw 2001 Space Odyssey in the Royal Festival Hall did you and that was played with an orchestra, but because of the way that film works, you can kind of phase it in and out. Yeah, uh, it's not you wouldn't have to have subtitles or anything like that. But yeah, obviously, I'd see that again in a heartbeat. But Raiders, Star Wars. I went to the Royal Festival Hall and saw the Detroit techno Maven Jeff Mills do a. It's not really an orchestra thing, but he did uh, his score for Metropolis. Metropolis has obviously had a few alternative scores and one of them was mm. by Jeff Mills. Um, it wasn't actually a techno score, but it had <laughs> electronica. But then after that finished, he played like a proper like set of like banging techno. <laughs> In the Royal Festival. Which I bet you didn't get at the... Uh, Did you do the robot? The Star Trek. No. Um, I, yeah. <laughs> I was doing the robot. Um, I've also seen the Gold Rush at the Sydney, Sydney Opera House oh, wow. with a live score. Actually, if you ever get to go and see a, a silent movie with a live pianist, Prince Charles Cinema in London does them fairly regularly, and uh, they're absolutely wonderful. The timing astounded me. Yeah. Because if, they if they're out by one second, then the whole thing's screwed. It was just astonishing watching them just play, play themselves in. And I would like to see Blazing Saddles with the live <laughs> score, where at the end, 
all the cast <laughs> storm onto the stage and beat up the orchestra with a massive punch up <laughs> smash through the wall the next yes. yeah. Highlander Freddie Mercury still alive somehow yeah who wants to live forever yes double build with Flash Gordon mm. yeah mm. now you're talking now you're talking okay we answered that question satisfactorily hope so I think we have okay let's move on now to a question from at J Henry Benmore who asks uh, he says Tarantino that's Quentin Tarantino recently emailed friends asking who the seven most exciting directors around now are uh, your answers please and then he went on to um, to find in a separate tweet he said that Tarantino uh, defined exciting as directors who have their best work ahead of them well we're optimistic here at the Empire Podcast we like to think every director has their best work ahead of them but uh, I know what the question means I know where he's coming from so do we each have seven or do we want to just talk around it well, we do you seven? send emails like that to your friends no, I send emails going, do you want to come around and watch the World Cup at my house? Yeah. Um, I'm sending one to you this afternoon, Phil. Oh, you? I hope you're free. Yeah. Well, for the entire World Cup? Yeah. I am, as it happens. My inbox will be ready. <laughs> you don't like football? No. Phil? Yes. Who are your seven subtitled oh, artist um, directors that you think are hmm, really excited? I've got seven Belgian directors. That I'm <laughs> Who's doing great work in the world of subtitles Ooh, right now? Good question. Really pioneering Good show. question. Um, they're not all foreign. Shane Carruth, who's sat in this very chair, I think. Yes. Um, and talked to us. Yes. He made Primer, uh, subsequent to that upstream colour. Yes. He's a fascinating filmmaker. I'm looking forward to seeing more from him. Mm-hmm. I think the question here, as the questioner pointed out, is that it's people with their best work ahead of them. So for that, for me, that would preclude filmmakers that I'm very excited by currently, like the David Finchers and Christopher Nolans and those sorts. Yes. Because I feel like they may not necessarily have films that can sort of excel past mm-hmm. things that they've done previously. I'd be surprised if, say, Michael Mann can make a film as good as The Insider in the future. But we'll see. I don't know. Well, he could make a film as good as, but maybe not surpass. Maybe that's it. Are people going to surpass themselves? But that's the way the I've... In- yeah, absolutely. The way I've interpreted is people that, that will, I think, have perhaps really great films in them. Um, yes. Ryan Johnson. Oh, um, yeah. Good call. Peter Strickland, a man whose first film was yes. shot in Hungarian, despite yes. the fact that he's from Reading, yes. and then shot and then made Barbarian Sounds a Studio, which is a fascinating and, and very excellent film. And he's just finished his third film, hasn't he? Uh, exactly. So mm-hmm. we're looking forward to that. Destin Cretton, who made mm. Short Term Twelve, which I know that Ali is a particularly huge fan of. Mm-hmm. Um, Nicole Holofcener, yes. who's made a number of films over a period of time, um, isn't a newcomer exactly, but seems to get better and better. Uh, Enough Said was a film that could have been really quite average but turned out to be really fantastic and a great validatory for uh, James Gandolfini um, Jeff Nichols I'm a fan of um, Jack Odiar of A Prophet and Rust and Bone yeah. fame um, Paolo Sorrentino but Jack Odiar is quite he's established I just he's, think yeah. he may have a masterpiece in him and I don't think he's quite made that masterpiece just yet interesting I thought you'd have Derek Cianfrancaire or Derek C in France, or however you want to pronounce his name, I can't do it. I just call him Derek Smith. Derek Jones. Yeah. Uh, I thought you might have him on, on your list. Because he's got the word France in his name. Yes. <laughs> um, you're right. Just hang on a second. Here it is. Here it is on my list now. I'd, I'd like to add Neil Blomkamp. I think District Nine is obviously great, but I swear there's something really, really, really great in him. I think just the stars need to align or whatever. I wasn't the biggest fan of Elysium, but, mm-hmm. and I do love him all the more for the amazing uh, contribution he made towards the uh, 300th issue. Still mm-hmm. available on iPads. But he, he patched himself into Famous Stills, and the pun title we gave it was Once More with Neil in, which was yes. just the 
honestly, um, we're slapping around backs here, but it's incredible. We're going to talk about these guys later, but Josh Trank, Gareth Edwards, Colin Trevorrow, who's obviously mm-hmm. doing Jurassic World. Ryan Coogler, who again we'll talk about later uh, with Fruitvale Station. So I was going to mention Jeff Nichols too. Steve McQueen, I reckon he's got a couple of good films in him. You think? Mm. You reckon he might have. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. I'm a big fan of Martin McDonough. There was really 50-50 split a group of my friends with um, Seven Psychopaths. Yeah. But I, uh, I actually got a really big kick out of it. I love Seven Psychopaths. I think he's fantastic. I think his brother, John Michael Madonna, is the bigger talent, though. You reckon? I think The Guard and Calvary are both five-star films. Calvary's my film of the year so far. Absolutely blew me away. Uh, he's a serious, seriously talented guy. Yeah. And I really cannot wait to see what they do next, he and Gleason together. I, I'm not going to choose between the McDonald's, but both of them would be on my list. I would also, I, I have, you've mentioned several of mine already, guys, but um, I'd say Edgar Wright, I think, has, has some incredible stuff in him. Um, mm. I am also perpetually looking forward to what Phil Lord and Chris Miller do. We're going to talk about them later. Mm-hmm. But um, I think they're two of the most interesting filmmakers around. I'd also mention Dean Dubois, who, of course, did the Two How to Train Your Dragons. Dubois. Um, after I can't working say that. on Lilo and Sitch. Deblois seemed de Blois. to be the way de that Blois. people were saying it okay. when I met him. He's he's doing brilliant, brilliant work. And uh, yeah, those are those. I think you've mentioned pretty much all my others. Um, Hall of Center, I'd like to second specifically. Dean Deblois also really wants to get into live action. Like really, really, really wants to get into live action. He had three projects ready before he was going to do the sequel to How to Train Your Dragon, and they all fell apart for different reasons. And in fact, the reason why Kate Blanchett uh, is in the second movie is because he was setting up a film around her and just things didn't work out well I think some of the best directors around at the moment have a background in animation because I think that I'm really excited about anything that say Brad Bird or Andrew Stanton decide to do and I know that you know John Carter didn't quite deliver but I think Stanton is an incredibly smart and talented guy I think Brad Bird has yet to put a foot wrong Lord and Miller obviously also an animation background I would watch those guys do pretty much anything because I think it's it's a different discipline but I think it seems to be producing people who have a real really close eye for storytelling specifically and visual storytelling in particular which I think is missing from some other directors we also haven't mentioned um, Gareth Evans I think mm-hmm. we had Edwards but not Evans mm-hmm. um, and he's obviously somebody who's who's incredibly exciting to watch what about Thomas Alfredson yeah who, uh, who's got clearly some game he does have, he, he, he got game that's he, the that's the one reaction I had to Tinker Taylor I went this guy's got game this guy's got game serious serious <laughs> games uh, I've got a few as well I mean you know I think a lot of them have been in this in, in this very chair because this is the chair that most interviewees sit in Colin Trevorrow as you mentioned uh, David Lowry who directed End and Body Saints and is one of those and I've said this in the podcast before to an extent but there's a really exciting new wave of American directors who are indie centric indie minded but grew up loving blockbusters they grew up loving Star Wars and Jurassic Park and so they want to apply those indie centric these two big blockbusters and in Colin Trevorrow's case for example he's immediately got his case his chance right out of the gate after Safety Not Guaranteed mm. very excited about the film David Lowry I think uh, is also a real talent to watch uh, Josh Trank we mentioned Ben Wheatley yeah. is someone I think is uh, has made some absolute belters but I still think he's got his truly great film within him it could be Freak Shift it could be I'm Rakabane if he ever gets around to that it could be uh, High Rise which he's doing next uh, one Antonio Bayona I think it's fantastic uh, I think the, the Orphanage and the Impossible are two fastly different films uh, very excited about World War Z too um, and uh, his next movie Monster Calls as well uh, Gareth Evans as you mentioned Duncan Jones is someone I think is very yeah. interesting Chasey Jandor uh, again mm. as someone who's made two stunning um, debut films debut we thought you kind of have a second debut well that's film. how you stunning know, they were they were, yeah, <laughs> they were so stunning that he rebooted, he rebooted himself with every single film um, 
And then there, there, there are people I just look forward to seeing. I think Matthew Fawn is a really underrated director, and I think I, I look forward to seeing every Matthew Fawn film because he, he likes to take conventions and tropes and, and, and subtly subvert them. And Adam Wingard, if we're looking at, at horror directors, I think is someone mm. I really look forward to seeing as well. Oh, I also just wanted to mention uh, Leos Carax um, because Holy Motors, I have no idea what happened, but I really, really like that it, it, it did happen. So, um, so I'd, I would be fascinated to see more from him. Such a good film. Fantastic. It sounds like a great, a great thing for you guys to weigh in on. So um, we're going to ask you to take to Twitter. Uh, we're going to ask you to use the hashtag Empire Magnificent 7. See what we did there? Empire Magnificent 7. So if you can just... The number rather than the whole the word, number, by the yeah, way. Yeah, the number seven. Otherwise, it's going to take a long time. Yeah, so if you can just write the surnames of the seven directors that you think uh, whose most exciting and best work is still ahead of them, and we'll read out the best ones in the show next week. Two more from me, Joe Cornish and Paddy Considine. Oh, oh yes. yes. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Oh, my God. Absolutely. We're fools. Paddy Considine, our very first guest. I'd also want to mention uh, the movie's coming out later on the 13th, Friday the 13th. Uh, Oculus is the film. But Mike Flanagan, mm-hmm. I think, is definitely on his way. It would not surprise me if he gets snapped up to do something much, much bigger. I know he's got something lined up already, mm-hmm. but uh, he could easily be one of the next, you know, superhero or Star Wars type reboot folk. I reckon. Mm. I think. I think he's very, very good indeed. Two more from me. Okay. We're now five, six away from naming every director currently working. <laughs> Why not? Um, two Australians: Kate Shortland, uh-huh. who made Law and Somersault prior to that. And David Mishwad. 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 David Mishwad, who who made Animal Kingdom and The Rover, which isn't quite as good as Animal Kingdom, but still has masses of talent. I'll mention one more. Another Australian director, uh, Patrick Hughes. That's an interesting name because he did an Australian film called Red Hill, which is really good. But he's also, I've got a sneaking suspicion that Expendables 3 might finally deliver on the ludicrous (laughs) promise that that, 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 that... that that gang has together. Uh, I'm not saying it'll be an amazing film, but I, I think he's. A, I think he might be the real deal as far as action movies are concerned. And he's doing, doing the, re, the uh, Raid remake next. Uh, the caster moving for that is very interesting indeed. I just got a feeling about this guy. On that wild optimistic note. <laughs> and we, we nearly said his name there, but Richard Ayoade. Richard Ayoade. The Double and Submarine. Both good films. Why not? Or why not indeed uh, okay so send in your suggestions to the uh, podcast using the hashtag that I just outlined and I've instantly forgotten Empire Magnificent 7 there we go alright so this is a question now from Facebook Dear Empire where's my subscription oh no that's, that's another one Graham Pierce uh, which unrelated movies do you like to think are connected and actually exist in the same universe contrary to the comments in the Winter Soldier spoiler special I like to think that the CIA boffins who designed Condor Man's gadgets are the same men who developed the Falcon's wings and other tech in the Marvel Universe I also like to think that Mary Poppins exists in the same world as Harry Potter. I think maybe all all musicals might exist in the same universe. That there is a parallel universe to this one where people break into song and and everybody can, you know, throw together a choreographed dance routine in seconds. And where would this parallel universe be? I do not know. Certainly not here. <laughs> Damn it. I would Say the first one we should mention is by John Negroni, who famously wrote, actually quite recently, the Pixar theory, which is that the assorted Pixar Easter eggs that connect them all, like A113, it seems to be an obsessive collection of numbers and one letter in this universe. But then there's also the pizza truck and all sorts. And 
to do it justice by just trying to paraphrase it out loud, it's not a good idea. Just type in the Pixar theory and it essentially explains how all of the Pixar films are somehow interconnected into the same world. And bear in mind that there are Pixar movies which are period pieces in a magical, mystical version of Scotland in the Middle Ages and also where cars talk and somehow also fly planes and it's weird. Mm. Yeah, it's a it's a bizarre theory that uh, it's a lot of fun to read I think it's uh, are you saying it's not perhaps overreaching slightly it's not real just a little tiny <laughs> bit maybe I don't know call me crazy but it's a lot of fun to read so I do recommend that if you haven't come across it before and on a similar note I mean because obviously those are connected by a studio I often wonder if uh, if old Tim Burton films take place in the same world you know mm. there's just there's such a common sensibility there and such a weirdness and such a matter of fact attitude to weirdness a lot of the time that I feel like all those probably take place in the same universe and that the Adams family is probably down the block from there. Should we just check off the obvious ones, Marvel Cinematic Universe, but Quentin Tarantino. Uh-huh. Uh, yep. There are so many things, and it's not just Red Apple Cigarettes. It, relatives, Sergeant Donnie Donowitz from Inglorious Bastards is connected to Lee Donowitz from True Romance. Mm-hmm. So obviously that's written rather than directed, but that's part of the same thing. Skagnetti is the name of the parole officer in Reservoir Dogs and also Tom Sizemore's character in... Natchaborn Killers, uh, Alabama's mentioned in Reservoir Dogs as well. There are lots of little little things like that. But that, that that's a filmmaker like Kevin Smith as well, who yeah. sets out to build a, a connected universe, the fused universe. Yeah. universe. Uh, I guess this question more you know pertains more to you know does Event Horizon, for example, take place in the same universe as, as Evil Dead Two? As Evil Dead Two, it does in my universe. <laughs> that's in for Chris's sure. head, it definitely. Does. I don't know why those two movies just leapt into my head. It's so weird that that's never happened before. You take place in the same universe as Event Horizon. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's infinite space, infinite terror. We had we doing? had Doctor William Weir. This is going to be he's gonna, the interview will be going out in October. We had Sam Neill uh, in the podcast last Friday in this very chair. Yeah, in this very chair. Let's say yes. I wasn't here. No. Uh, other things are Lone Ranger and Green Hornet, supposedly, and this doesn't work in the films. Green Hornet is the nephew of Lone Ranger. But if you, this is a separate thing, and it's a TV thing, but Dwayne McDuffie, who is best known for this, he has a grand unification theory. So type in Dwayne McDuffie, grand unification theory, of TV. And anybody who knows their TV lore knows that St. Elsewhere ends with a child and a snow globe and essentially the whole of this show mm. has been inside this child's mind. His theory is the whole of TV as we know it is inside this child's mind <laughs> because St. Elsewhere connects to different things in the same way that X-Files connects with a wire which connects to St. Elsewhere and it's just a massive yeah. mash of everything. Read it, it's mm. overblown and overwrought but amazing. That so. one is, yeah, I've read that, that is hilarious. Well, the, the, the Detective Munch theory well, this is you know Richard Belter who plays um, Munch, Detective Munch. You know he's a really interesting character because he's been on tons and tons of shows. He started off with Homicide: Life in the Street. He's now on Law and Order SVU, but he's cameoed in everything. I think he's cameoed in the X Files. Uh, he's cameoed in, in the Simpsons as that character. Uh, yeah, Homicide: Life in the Street, Law and Order, the X Files, the Beat, Law and Order, Trial by Jury. He's been in Arrested Development as Munch. Uh, he's been in The Wire for a shot, uh, mm. for one shot as as Munch as well. He, he's um, part of that unified he's theory. He's part of that unified, unified theory. Here's a scary thing. This is really weird. But once there was a crossover episode between Recess, the 90s cartoon series, and the Lilo and Stitch cartoon series. That's amazing. And uh, there's also an amazing episode of Friends where the, the cast of Mad About You turn up. And Ursula, uh, Phoebe's twin sister, oh, yeah. was on that show as well. And there's a, there was a crossover between... Uh, 90s cartoon show reboot and the X-Files as well so that must be Ooh. linked to 
My brother has an interesting theory, which is that Harry Cole from the conversation is also the Gene Hackman character in Enemy of the States, yes. yeah. which yeah. I like. Because those films yeah. could, just by having slightly different directors, could operate in the same surveillance culture. Very universe. much so. Machete and Spy Kids. <laughs> um, we haven't mentioned, and I know somebody's going to write in if we don't, Michael Keaton who mm-hmm. plays the same character in two different Elmore Leonard adaptations from different directors. He's in Jackie Brown and in Out of Sight, Out of Sight mm. as the same character. So just worth mentioning, please don't write in and say, eh, you've forgotten. Uh, and while we're talking about shared universes, no, we've slightly morphed away from what the question was originally, but as a huge Stephen King fan, his universe is massively, massively interconnected uh, as, as shown specifically in the Dark Tower series. And so is his son's now. There are Ooh. links between Joe Hill's stories and some of Stephen King's stories. There's mentions of the similar towns in Maine that don't actually exist in the real world. And there's now crossovers with um, Nosferatu, uh, Joe Hill's book. Amazing. We should mention the Breaking Bad sting, where at the end of Breaking Bad, you see that it was actually a horrible dream from the dad off Malcolm in the Middle. I love those questions. They were very good questions. If you want to top those questions, uh, please send in your efforts to us. We're on Twitter as at Empire Magazine I went Scottish there for some reason at Empire Magazine use the hashtag Empire Podcast which is not to be confused with hashtag Empire Magnificent 7 uh, we're on email uh, at uh, podcast at empireonline.com we're on Facebook as well as Empire Magazine ok time now for our first interview there's often so much hullabaloo about House of Cards it's easy to forget that Netflix has several other belting original shows on the go Orange is the New Black their dramedy set in a female prison is just one of them and as the show enters its second season the powers that be decided that Big Shilling was in order. So they deployed Jason Biggs and Taylor Shilling for some Biggs Shilling. It's clever. It's clever wordplay. Don't laugh. Um, you could hear you could hear the scaffolding being kind of winched into place on that bit and, of wordplay. And that was that was they, they came in and they they had a chat with them. Um, I'm, I'm quite ashamed. Tell now. us more about that one. Yeah. I need to preface this because, unfortunately, there was a bit of a a technical snafu. James had to be looped in a couple of times, so enjoy that expert bit of editing from me. Thank you. (laughs) Doff your caps in my direction. Just a few things, because we kind of just get started. Mm. Before the mic started going, uh, we were talking about the nerdiest game of all time. Uh, It's a board game called Settlers Catan, and I highly recommend it. But for whatever reason, it came up in conversation. I mentioned that I play it often, and then Taylor Schilling asked me to explain the entire concept of it and how it works. And if you know the game... it's very boring, so maybe it's just as well it wasn't on mic. Anyway, that explains that. Other things that are in this show that you may want to know about, it's not got spoilers in it as such, but if you're desperate to... and If you haven't watched the first season, you're desperate to avoid any spoilers and maybe listen away now, but the next 50 minutes are a lot of fun. In the TV show, there is a tampon sandwich. There's no way of getting around that one. That is brought up. Uh, it's based on the memoirs of a real person who actually went to uh, an all-female prison for about a year and a half. Also, uh, the lead uh, character is called Piper. That's who Taylor Schilling plays. And... Captain Janeway is in this film it's uh, in this show, it's not like an interconnected universe, but the actress who plays her is in this show, which is why we bring up Star Trek, uh, apparently for no reason. I really enjoyed this interview I asked some really ridiculous questions and got away with it. Enjoy and also watch the show because it's great. And it's you and James Dyer? That is me Okay. and then James Dyer. So enjoy I like Mafia, I like that game Do you play Mafia in, in England? No. Like a, is that a board game again? No, it's like a bunch of people sitting in a room, and how, how would you describe? I don't know. It's like it's like a. I've, I've, I played it once, and I barely knew what was happening. <laughs> um, 
where you like obliterated. You have to kill people and yeah, you like close your eyes. It's like a town, and then there are like there's like a, the mafia, and then townspeople, and an angel, and a doctor, and people sit in it. You're like, this is my style. This is amazing. Sounds awesome. And it's really and it's funny. You shut your eyes, and then just through looking at each other, you have to decide who's who are the killers and who's saving people and who's the doctor. I something. used to play this when I was twelve, but it's, yeah, it's like um, Blink Murder. It was called. Where, yeah, something like that. Something like that. Anyway, right, we are starting. Believe it or not. And uh, I just started a visual joke, which was handing you guys a Terry's Chocolate Orange, one of Britain's finest pieces of confectionery. And the joke is, of course, is that the show is called Orange is the New Black. And you gave us an orange. <laughs> Do you see how great? We, we don't just uh, throw the shit together. This is all, all planned. You've really hit Jason. Like, I he's very excited about love this. chocolate oranges. Chocolate oranges are the new black. <laughs> <laughs> it's literally what I wanted to hear. Yeah. yeah. No, I love these, and I'm leaving with this. Yes, you are. Great. Now, this show became a kind of an instant hit, certainly amongst my friends who were just shouting at me, saying, why haven't you watched it yet? With it becoming this instant cult thing, where's the weirdest place anybody has recognized you for this show? Oh, that happened last week. Where? Okay, no, let's get this. I'm in New York for, like, a couple days. I want to say I'm glad that people like your friends that are playing that game Make well, me feel, that makes me feel smart. Just to point this are out. Are into the show. We were just talking about Settlers of Catan, one of the nerdiest board games of all time, off mic, which is... Which really? Is all, yeah, oh really. A lot happened off mic. A lot happened off mic. Anyway, Settlers of Catan, I enjoy the crossover, Orange is the Black Settlers of Catan, even though I don't really know what Settlers of Catan is, and I don't know how to play it. Um, I was walking down the street. It has, so it has nothing to do with Chris Catan? No. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. That's really funny. You fucking interrupted me. <laughs> And I, I was literally no, in the middle joke. of. I was literally in the middle of talking. It's a really. It's a. What you just said was funny, and I'm just acknowledging that it was funny because it was. Thanks, T. Shells. Make me laugh. So I was walking cross town, trying to be rather incognito in gym clothes. You know, looking kind of raggedy. Got some sunglasses on, doing my thing, on a weekend day, and slowly in the West Village of New York City, a cop car rolls to a stop next to me on the sidewalk, <laughs> rolls down the window and says, Taylor Schilling. I freeze. I freak <laughs> the fuck out. I was like, I've done something wrong. I am, I I was so scared. I was like, I felt like I was being pulled over, you know, which has happened a couple times. And I was, I was completely terrified. And I like turn around and there are like two blonde police officers in the car. They're like, hey, we love Orange is the New Black. <laughs> Women? Women? Both of them were women. Wow. I was so terrified. <laughs> I couldn't even smile. I was confused. And they, <laughs> they, then they just drove away. And I'm still scared that I'm in trouble with the people, New York City police officers. Because then I was terrified afterwards. Like, I probably should have made a joke and smiled at them. Because now they're going to go back and tell their police officer friends that I'm a dick. A D. A big a D. A big D. And and that what is something happens to me, and then they all are angry because I right was, in the slammer. Yeah. Well, and they I mean, probably. So, I wonder if at this. I actually, this is an interesting question, guys. I'll be doing the questions today. <laughs> I wonder if like there's a an additional intrigue, or maybe it's just my sick sense of whatever. But like, you know, it'd be interesting to arrest Taylor Schilling because then we'd actually get to kind of see her as her character. Maybe. That's. 
I'm like, you know telling what? you, those let's, thoughts let's all went through. Let's throw her was... in jail for the night because Jason, he, wouldn't you know, that be I'm funny? not going to be able to get, sleep like, our after own personal like performance. Like, <laughs> this is like a live show of yeah. Orange Is the New Black, and I won't be able to sleep. I like will be thinking about this. I'll be thinking about those two girls. Thank God they don't live in. I would be London. really careful if I were you. I would imagine that. <laughs> I'm not the only one with this thought, and I'm not even a law enforcement agent <laughs> anymore. Oh, yeah. Okay. yeah, I stopped. After stopped. American Pie 3, the third one, I stopped. <laughs> That's when the real money started rolling in, and I was like, fuck it. I think I'm going to hang up the badge. <laughs> now, this, this is going to come across as a strange question because it's a weird one, but the character of Piper, and I, this may come as a shock to you, she's a bit of an idiot. Oh, Boo. pipes. Do you, Poor do you, pipes. Would you ever read the script and go, come on, really? You can, oh. Could you not do that? I've Sometimes, but most of the time I think, you know, she was really trying. She's really, she's, she, she's really trying and she is, she is blindsided. She is, a, she does not know what's going on and she is terrified. I think a lot of stuff happens when you're terrified. You do lots of weird shit. Like, like blinded by the light. Yeah, see, cue Jason's. Blinded by the police lights. <laughs> you do have to admire the show's marketing department. The official Orange is the New Black cookbook is uh, currently available, uh, featuring such delicacies as prison pad Thai and correctional cheesecake. Wait, is, is that it true? I'm not is that, even is that from serious. Netflix? Is like Netflix a part of that? Is it like yeah, legit? Is like legit officially? Uh, Red Chicken Kiev is apparently also quite nice. They uh, they do seem to have missed out the uh, tampon sandwich recipe. Oh, <laughs> edition of the book. Oh god, that's so gross. I forgot. See, I forgot about that. The tampon sandwich. <laughs> I, I imagine gross. Have, yeah, the tampwich. The t- <laughs> witch, oh my yeah. gosh, that should have been a recipe in the book. <laughs> the tamp witch. Yeah. <laughs> would have been like uh, a fluff and nutter or something. You're just on the special <laughs> Ketchup. <laughs> I am so sorry. We're fresh out. <laughs> fluff and <laughs> Marshmallow fluff and ketchup. Netflix's representative on Earth, uh, Kevin Spacey. Have you, have you met him on your Netflix parties, travels? Have you? you? I have. have met him. Yes, lovely man. Is it very intimidating? Yeah, I think he's a little intimidating. Sure. Yeah. He doesn't knock the table at any point because whenever no. he does, he goes like that, right? Because he has With to the get the ring. His, so he has to get his whole ring in. Yeah. No, yeah. he. Thank God, he didn't knock the table around me. Because he could ask me to do anything okay. and then go. Could you go uh, wash my car? Hey, uh, tickle my balls. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, yes, sir, Mister Spacey. What am I doing? <laughs> yeah, you got it. Wait. Uh, hey, uh, would you tickle my balls? Um, dude, weirdo. Yes, uh, absolutely. Where, just, where, would you like me to unzip, or you're going to whip them out? You guys are probably, are either of you Star Trek fans? No, but I know where you're going with you know, this. Like, well, you, you don't even get to, you, Janeway is there, and you're not even. I know, isn't that a waste of, of Trekkie dumb? It really is. <laughs> yes. No. It really is. It re- it, yeah, but no. But we are, but now we're Kate Mulgrew fans for a, an entirely different reason, which, which is, I think, in a way, good. You know, we didn't come to it with any afforma- you know, with any sort of preconceived notions of her being captain. What is it? I mean, she blew. Yeah. She, 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 she blew who? She blew <laughs> what? you. What? Lucy who? Blue, blue who? <laughs> yes, yes, ma'am. You got it, Red. Who do you want me to blow? <laughs> uh, yeah. No, I'm. I'm a huge fan of Kate Mulgrew. 
She actually played my mother on a the first job on in 2010 that I ever had the show called Mercy. Oh really? She played my mom and um she's like a huge she's a big big influence in my life. I like her a lot. I've known her for a while. Was the accent ever infectious when the cameras weren't rolling? Yes, yes. It <laughs> makes me want to be Russian and kill you and make you food. Sucking food. Suck food. Kill, kill you and make you food. <laughs> no, in that order. No, make you suck food. <laughs> make you suck food. <laughs> make you suck food. Make no, you sucking food. Not tickled balls. Not tickled balls. No. <laughs> <laughs> Watching the show, I couldn't help noticing that Orange is the New Black doesn't actually have people wearing a lot of orange in it. Yes. Khaki is the New Black. Khaki is the New Black. Khaki is the New Blackie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the working title. And, and yet they changed it. And yeah, I, it's, it's so weird. At the end of the first season, your character Piper essentially loses it. Yes, she does. How good did it feel to really scream as that character because i can imagine there was a lot of built up rage in there it was a pretty exciting scene to shoot it was a pretty it was a, it was a really exciting arc to play with over the course of that season how much she changed mm. yeah but yeah that that really was like kind of okay i want to pause the tv now because i need to go for a walk that was <laughs> that was intense huh? that was uh, so the whole time of the show is quite interesting in that regard because it's actually it's very funny it's quite sort of Light-hearted, because often you think prison drama, this is going to be really mm-hmm. and it isn't. And then... And then it is. Turn. And then yeah. it is. And yeah. then it is. <laughs> it's really brutal. Yeah. And then screw you, it is. Yeah, it's exactly what you thought it was. Comedy is the new drama. <laughs> I still think khaki is the new blackie. is pretty genius. <laughs> well, I think... I think that's my best one today. <laughs> Everyone's cool. Well, <laughs> surely. I've... <laughs> I fucking love that. Khaki is the new blackie. Khaki is the new blackie. Is that going to definitely be in a diary entry at the end of the day? I feel like that could be a kid's show. A good Uh, show for a kid. (laughs) Khaki is the new blackie. Mommy and daddy watch Orange is the new black. (laughs) Babies watch Khaki is the new blackie. Jason, I bet you get asked this a lot, but have you ever counted the number of times on screen that you've had to masturbate? I haven't counted, but it's... How many it's times not is a, it? Is it more? It's not a low number. It's not a low number. It's no. definitely not a, like, uh, it's n- not one hand, no pun intended. Pun, in, pun intended. <laughs> pun intended. Pun intended. It's, is it more? Well, I've done it in every American Pie film. Yeah, so that's right. four. Three. Orange is the five. New Black. Five. Do you do uh, it anywhere besides American Pie? Yes. <gasps> I've done it in, where else did I do it? I did it in, what was it? Saving Silverman. Whoa. She hands me a bottle of lube. Mm-hmm. Tells me to... Tells me to <laughs> tickle my own balls. And let's see, what else? I feel like there was more, but... What, what, what I'm so impressed... Six is pretty good. Yeah, that'll do. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you know. Jack Nicholson's not managed that in his whole career. Yeah, so. exactly, exactly. Thank you very and, much. And he's going to be good, isn't he? He has six Oscars. I've masturbated six times on screen, <laughs> you know? Confusing for me, because I, I masturbate probably six times a day, mm. and Jason does, so it's... <laughs> Gets a little confusing. Do you always use a third person when you're masturbating? <laughs> Jason always uses a third person when he masturbates. It's hard because if he's too directly involved, it, ta- <laughs> it takes him out of the moment entirely, yeah, and, J- and he loses his. Uh, you know what I mean? <laughs> well, good. I'm so glad that you. Yeah, I'm glad we counted it up. Six is good. That's uh, at, 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 at minimum. If I at really minimum. went back and sort of really. Um, looked at oh, I did this children's show when I was <laughs> Kaki is think. the new blackie. Yeah, right? I did this kids yeah. show in like '92. I think I probably did masturbate on that. So seven. 
Seven, all right. Yeah, lucky cool. seven. There we go. How many months into the sentence is Piper at this point? Because she was sent down for 15 months originally. Uh, we've had one year of the show. Presumably, if it keeps getting renewed, you're going to have to shiver guard at some point to keep this going. It's a very good question. That's a question I have. Got, what, 15 months. I know. What are they going to do? Yeah. I don't know what they're going to do. You know, I knew that maybe at one point, but it's only like four something months like that. Yeah. Well, like, it was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's like four, I think. But then more time has lapsed when we pick up the first, the second season. Uh, it's not okay, right so on the hills. Straight. Yeah. I guess you can't really pitch. Like, I'd really like to shiv. Like, yeah. can you make that happen? <laughs> the thing, the great thing is, anything is possible. Yeah. Because, you know, the book sort of is the source material, sure. obviously, but the show is its own thing. And already, already it's becoming its, its own thing. Well, I just really hope the soap thing kicks off because I want the soap business to work. <laughs> And it's frustrating me that it's not working. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's not the point of the show. <laughs> but I do feel like there's a viable business opportunity that's being wasted. Yes. Sorry. Somebody should license that. <laughs> Chapman soap business. I think official soap. <laughs> official soap that could go with the cookbook. Yeah. I gotta get I gotta get somebody on that. I gotta get into that. That could be a big money maker for me. Yeah, big time. Netflix is really missing a lot of opportunities here. Tampwitch. <laughs> Uh, Polly and Polly, Polly and Piper's soap company. And yeah, yeah. and next time a policeman stops you, you can just throw him some soap. Yeah, like, run, <laughs> just throw the soap and run. <laughs> Thank you guys. It's Thank been you. Nothing Thank short of something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, time now for movie news. What's in the movie news box? Two big pieces of Star Wars news this week. First up came the news that. Uh, uh, Lupita Nyong'o and Gwendolyn Christie of Game of Thrones have joined Star Wars Episode 7. Their roles have not been announced yet. There have been many, many rumours about what kind of things they could be playing. Nothing is confirmed right now. Uh, Nyong'o, of course, in particular, had been rumoured um, to be part of Star Wars for a while and, and certainly those rumours and this casting would explain why she hasn't been snapped up for any other high-profile roles following her Oscar win. Uh, but it's fantastic to see her get uh, another big screen role and such a big, big screen break as well. And uh, also Gwendolyn Christie. I mean, she's so good in Game of Thrones. She'll be seen in Mockingjay, the final two parts of uh, The Hunger Games, pretty soon. Um, but again, it's really good to see her uh, on screen. And she's such a striking presence and so fearsome in Game of Thrones that I think it's going to be absolutely great to see what she brings to Star Wars. And also, of course, it's great that we now have a slightly more um, mixed cast for Star Wars and that it would appear that not everyone in a galaxy far away is necessarily related to Luke. Uh, so that's kind of exciting. Not every woman in a galaxy far away is, is specifically related to Luke. So that's rather exciting. So, yeah, they, they're joining uh, everybody we've already announced. Daisy Ridley, John Boyega, Oscar Isaac, Adam Driver, Donald Gleeson, Andy Serkis, Max von Sydow, Kenny Baker, Anthony Daniels, Peter Mayhew, Harrison Ford, Mark Hamill, Carrie Fisher in the film. I wonder if everyone's playing humanoid, so to speak, or human, so to mm. speak. You know, I was thinking about this the other day. One of the great charms about Star Wars was you have a Wookiee, like Chewbacca, literally a major character. Mm. Big walking carpet, two robots. Uh, I wonder if any of, any of the people who have been announced uh, might be suiting up or getting under lots of latex or 
Quite possibly. That would yeah. be nice. That would be refreshing. I wouldn't like. I would. I'd be slightly disappointed if everyone was playing themselves, so to speak. Well, certainly we've always been uh, kind of speculating that Andy Circus may be performance capturing, as he is the king of performance capture. He is. Um, so you know that would seem likely. But for the rest, yeah, I would imagine somebody at least will have some kind of prosthetics, even if it's sort of light, rather you know attractive Star Trek style prosthetics. Mm. You know, if they need someone to play Gamorrean God. We're pretty much free, aren't we, after the World Cup? I'm free during the World Cup, so just... Yeah, me too. Just tap me up, JJ. Well, well yeah, there's yeah. an elite squad of four guards. I'm not free after the World Cup. I'm not free during World Cup Plus One, which is when I just rewatch the World Cup again. <laughs> I've got an awful shot, so Stormtrooper, I could also, also obviously do that. More news. Now, last week we had the news that Gareth Edwards was going to direct uh, one of the planned Star Wars spin-offs, the standalone films, uh, that was going to be written by the Book of Eli and After Earth's Gary Witter. Now we get the news that another standalone film has a director. That is going to be Josh Trank, uh, currently best known for Chronicle, which is fantastic. Um, also currently working on the Fantastic Four reboot. So this will come after he's finished work on that. So we're probably looking at, what, 2017, I would have thought, for this one? Someone said 2018 yesterday. Okay, either for way. This one. Really good, really good choices of directors so far. Speaking of directors who have uh, less well-known directors getting very big gigs, Doctor Strange, the Sorcerer Supreme of the Marvel Universe. He was mm -hmm. alluded to in Captain America 2, if you want to call it that. And now, obviously, he's going to be turned into... A he frog. A frog, yes, through magic. No, his character is, is going to be the lead of a film. And we have a director for that film. Mm -hmm. Who is it? The director is called... Do -do -do. Scott Derrickson. <laughs> that was a terrible drum roll. <laughs> Sorry. He is the guy who previously brought us Sinister most recently, which did very well, and a lot of people do like a lot, uh, as well as The Exorcism of Emily Rose. That film scared the shit out of me. Perhaps mm. uh, the even less popular The Day the Earth Stood Still. That film also scared the shit out of me for, <laughs> for entirely different reasons. And maybe I'm reading too much into this. It looks like for the slightly more horror-tinged Marvel movie, they've gone for a horror director. Hmm. Yes. He's, um, I mean, I interviewed him for Emily Rose back in the day, and he's a very smart guy, and mm. one who, um, who, at that point, it, for that film in particular, was really kind of interested in engaging with the like the the philosophy of the universe and the, and the sort of you know philosoph philosophical angle of that story, and also with the kind of is it real? Is it is it magic? Is it something else? Kind of angle, which is a, an interesting one for the Marvel universe because we've had you know Thor's statements before that. It, there's no difference between magic and technology for us. Mm. Now, for Doctor Strange, it seems like there is a difference between magic and technology, but which side do we fall on? And it's an interesting thing as well, because it opens up the Marvel Universe in, in another direction. If you're a reader of the comics, you know that they occasionally take in, you know, de demons from another dimension. They, they take in really full-on magical creatures, as well as the sort of techno and the alien stuff and the mm -hmm. superhero and supervillain stuff. So if this works, again, you've got a new facet to that universe that opens up and gives you something new to, to kind of explore. Yeah, I think, uh, I think it's a really interesting choice. I think Derrickson's a very interesting director. He's good on Twitter. If you want to follow him, he's at, at Scott Derrickson, funnily enough. Um, and it was interesting. There was a, when the story first broke, I think it was Variety, uh, did a story going, Scott Derrickson's in talks or final negotiations to, to direct Doctor Strange. Literally three minutes later, Derrickson tweeted, uh, my next project will be Strange. And it was a picture of him peering over a, a copy of Doctor Strange. Now, it may be a clue. I don't really know <laughs> whether you want to take anything from that. It's a very good choice. For me, I think... Um, Should we briefly 
explain who Doctor Strange is. We will. We'll get on to in a second. But I just think after Sinister, uh, sorry, after the day of the Earth stood still was an experiment for him in the big budget realm. It didn't go well for him. Um, I think Sinister and Deliver Us from Evil, which looks very good, and I'm hearing very, very good things about. Um, I think they may have recharged his batteries, so to speak, and I think he now may now be ready to take on something for Marvel. And I think also this is important for Marvel. They've had they've been buffeted around a little bit for the last week to ten days after the Edgar Wright Ant Man debacle, uh, which further spiraled out of control a little bit this week when uh, Adam McKay uh, was revealed to be in final negotiations to take over the Ant Mantle, and then uh, the very next day walked away from it. Uh, which led further people to speculate on the state of the script, on the state of the production, etc., etc. So I think it's important that they got some good news out there, something to you know the, to show people that the machine is still uh, trucking along nicely. Mm. Thank God for the machine. You don't, you don't think they'll ever bring Edgar Wright back if they actually? Honestly, I uh, well, we're not privy to the inner workings of of you know of Marvel or or Edgar, but. Uh, honestly, the, the press, the bad press they've had, the negative feedback they've had from from fans has been so negative. It surprised me that they haven't picked up the phone and gone, "Come on, let's do it. Let's do your thing. Hmm. This is what you're the guy. Your vision's what made us want to do this in the first place. Let's just do your vision. Let's just do it and get it out there." On the other hand, they may they may be thinking, oh, "If we take the gamble, if we piss off a small handful of fanboys now, it won't mean so much in the long run when the movie comes out and most people who haven't heard of Edgar Wright." We'll go to see the movie regardless. Another small marvel bit of news is that Josh Brolin has been confirmed as the voice of Thanos. It's Ooh. not been confirmed, but he's actually acting in it. Uh, but we do know that he will be playing Thanos in whatever capacity they deliver Thanos yeah. in both Guardians of the Galaxy and in the future. So there you go. The man's got a voice. Uh, yeah, Feige said to me that there was an actor playing Thanos. I don't know what that means. Brolin was on set. Who knows? Um, but anyway, you, you asked us who Doctor Strange is. Helen... Who is Dr. Stephen Finson Strange? Um, he is uh, a surgeon, um, a very arrogant and cocky surgeon, who lost his his ability uh, when his hands were, were injured. Um, and basically, after trying lots of different uh, methods to get his, his, his you know fine surgery fingers back, uh, took to magic. But in the course of studying magic, he basically surpassed his old old ambitions and became the Sorcerer Supreme um, and basically spends a lot of time fighting demons from other dimensions and such like mystical threats rather than, you know, the usual kind mm. of supervillains for the most part. He doesn't do card tricks. He doesn't stand no. in a box no. for 40 days on end. Doesn't saw women in half, mostly. Yeah, <laughs> it's, uh, it's going to be interesting. And uh, the casting for this is moving along as well. I'd imagine that Marvel will drop this in 2016. At the moment, they have two slots in 2016. One's for Captain America 3, we know that. The other one I thought might go for Thor 3. But I have a sneaking suspicion they're going to wrap it up to three films a year at some point. Uh, and this may be the film to do it with. The, the time frame makes sense to drop it in 2016, but it might be 2017. Anyway, um, a lot of actors could play Doctor Stephen Strange. Matthew Modine who also once sat in this chair um, has been very publicly lobbying for the chance mm. to play Stephen Strange. I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, Jared Leto is the one who's been front runner linked. Yeah, he's been rumoured uh, just this week. Uh, Patrick Dempsey also in the past has, has lobbied for the role. He's too hunky. Wow. Dr. Stephen Hunky. <laughs> what about Benedict Cumberbatch? He's got a sorcerer's name. <laughs> <laughs> he does. He'd be great. He'd be a very, very good choice for me. Uh, 
Doctor Strange has always been a not an older gentleman, not you know not Stan Lee age, mm. but he's certainly been a guy in his forties. He, yeah, he should be more sort of Iron Man aged than yeah. Thor age. He does remind me of Iron Man insofar as what little I know of him. He does remind me of an arrogant, not a bore, but somebody who's brought down to earth and has to rebuild himself by training himself yeah. in a fashion and then actually ends up doing good for the world. It's probably the goatee. And what about Adrian Brody? What about John Hamm? John, what about John Hamm? Mm. 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 Do we all have a, a ham off? I've got a story. <laughs> what? Please, Phil, tell us your story. My story is regarding the Lana and Andy Wachowski film, Jupiter Ascending, which is a batshit demented looking sci-fi. Um, you may have seen the trailer for it. It's come out quite recently. Um, I'm assuming that the, the, the decision to push it back to next year from a release date mooted later this year he's come since the trailer went out because that would make no sense from a marketing point of view so in the last few weeks there's been some issues with it now those issues are pertaining to the fact that they need more time to work on the CG uh, for this movie which is incredibly CG heavy and um, it looks a little bit like a kind of fifth element meets some of the sci-fi dimensions of Cloud Atlas their last film uh, the more cynical amongst the web fraternity is suggesting that there may be deeper issues with this film and the studio may want to just push it back no. um, to work on other elements of it. But I'm not cynical and I think that it's just that one of their computers is broken <laughs> and they need to get IT in to fix it and that's going to take a bit of time. So consequently, they need a bit more bandwidth to get the damn thing finished. And uh, it's going to be amazing. And it's going to come out in February 2014 and be the first film to release in February 2015, thank you, that wins an Oscar in 2016. <laughs> wow. March time. That's wow. Fight and talk there. Quite so that's the, that's the best case scenario. The worst case scenario is an absolute turkey and the studio hates it <laughs> and just wants it, wants it in a dead zone. This is a film that stars Channing Tatum as an albino genetically engineered with wolf DNA warrior. Yeah. How could it possibly not be awesome? And he's got Justin Timberlake's goatee from Southland Tales as well, stuck to the front of his face. Exactly. Someone on Facebook, someone on Twitter suggested that they needed time to improve his ears. Because <laughs> if you've seen Channing Tatum's got these ridiculous ears, like, I guess they're wolf ears. Because of the wolf Because of the DNA, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, who knows? Maybe he'll end up fighting off against Liam Neeson. Well, I'm, I'm fully on board with whatever decision anyone makes in regard to this film. <laughs> Amen to that. <laughs> um, anything else? What more no. do you need? I mean, what, really, what? there's all the news. That's, that's, that's that, it. That's just so much news. That's it. There's, there's too much news sometimes. I've got a bit of movie news. It's not movie news. It's just news regarding the Empire podcast. We've announced this on Twitter, but our second live show has been confirmed. We did one a few months ago. Uh, a few hundred of you were lucky enough to come along to that, or <laughs> are unlucky, depending on your point of view. And uh, we're doing it again. Uh, this time we're doing it at the Edinburgh Film Festival. I went Scottish again there. I can't. Oh, oh, did. Uh, the Edinburgh Film Festival uh, on June 24th. Uh, and it's from 3.30 to 5.30 p.m., which we know is a school day. We know it's during working hours. But you know, what better excuse to bunk off work, to throw a sickie uh, or, you know, fake your own death than by coming along and watching the four of us. It will be the four of us and some very, very special guests indeed. Uh, at the Film House in Edinburgh, uh, tickets are just five pounds now. If you go to the Edinburgh Film Festival website, you can you can do that as well. Also follow us on Twitter, where we will be uh, tweeting links to that as well. So do come along and see us. It'll be a bonny good time, as I believe they say up there. Hey, 
And we'll all be wearing kilts, won't we? Are we going to do party quirks live? <laughs> live, live party, party quirks. quirks. Yes. That'd be amazing. If that doesn't uh, compel you to buy a ticket, I don't know what will. <laughs> I don't know what will. Maybe we'll get one of our special guests to, to come up and do a party quirk. Okay. That'd be quite fun. That'd be quite fun. So yeah, very excited about that. So uh, please do come and see us. It'll be a blast. Time now for our second interview, which sees a return to the pod booth. And yes, this very chair for Bob Whitey, the man who directed many wonderful episodes of Curb Your Enthusiasm and who was last here for his excellent documentary about Woody Allen. He's back now with the Sky TV show Mr. Sloan, a bittersweet comedy drama starring Nick Frost as a repressed man in the 1960s who slowly learns to loosen up. It's about to hit its third episode tonight. It plays on Sky Atlantic and Whitey came in recently to talk to me about his baby, which is the show. He doesn't have a baby. Not with him anyway. Enjoy. The last time you were here uh, talking about the Woody Allen documentary you made, you were just about to go and start filming Mr. Sloan. You know what? I'll tell you what was going on. When Mm -hmm. I was here to talk about the Woody Allen film, Mm I think that was, yes, I think I had written the pilot script, mm-hmm. and that was the trip uh, uh, during which I met with different networks to pitch it, and Sky picked it up, and here we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, you wrote the pilot. Did you conceive it always as a, as a six-episode series, which is a very un-American thing to do? <laughs> well, it had to be a British series only yeah. because the first element was Nick Frost. It mm-hmm. was based on that. I had an idea... For something that I specifically wanted Nick for and I approached him about it I actually emailed him because we're friendly mm-hmm. and I said um, my first email to him was rather cryptic it just said uh, would you ever consider going back to series television <sighs> under the right circumstances and he wrote back I guess he knew where I was going with this where I was leading he said I'd give my right ball to work with you <laughs> and uh, his wife said later that that was his good one so that that was a, a good sign <laughs> and uh, so that was the first thing so by the very nature of it being a Nick Frost vehicle it became a British series something mm-hmm. that would be shot here that would take place out here and um, so I like the fact that you guys uh, traditionally do six or seven episodes because that suits my work ethic which is practically non-existent versus uh, uh, say a broadcast network show in the states which sure. goes on for 23 episodes even though those shows have huge writing staffs and all that i still don't see how anybody gets through that many episodes in a year i mean those people really give up their lives mm. you can do six or seven episodes i won't say without breaking a sweat because you know it's none of it's easy but what's nice about that many episodes is that it, it's it's very manageable. In other words, one person, in this case myself, can write and direct the, the shows. Mm-hmm. You know, Whereas when you have a show that goes on for that many episodes in the States, you have a number of writers, you have a number of directors. Although I should say that there are two other writers, um, Ashlyn Ditta and um, uh, Ollie, Oliver Lansley, who each co-wrote one episode of, of Sloan. But it was... Um, it was all fun. It, was, uh, it wasn't something that just went on and on and was exhausting. It was uh, fairly compact, and I think it was a couple of months of prep, a couple of months of shooting, and a couple of months of editing. Not too bad. Yeah. So I like the way you guys do things out here. You don't try to stretch it out forever. You mm. know. Uh, it, it looks and feels very different from 
uh, well, basically anything you've done in the past, but I, th- I think most people will look at your TV work in terms of, of curb. Right. And it, this feels a complete 180 from that. I mean, this is very stylized. Yeah. Yes, it is. And <laughs> by by uh, mere virtue of it being scripted, mm. it's already different from curb, which worked off of outlines and, and, and there's so much improvisation here. I find it convenient to have a script <laughs> where you kind of know <laughs> what you're going to be doing. Also, you know, the big, uh, this doesn't speak directly to what you're, you're, you're talking about. Mm. We, we'll get back to that. But one thing that's interesting about the way you do things out here that's different than the way we do it in the States is in the States, if you do a TV series, you shoot it episodically, meaning you'll shoot and complete episode one, and then you move on to two, and then you move on to three. Whereas here with six or seven episodes, the reason I go back and forth between those numbers is that uh, Mr. Sloan is a six episode series, but the pilot is an hour mm. and the subsequent episodes are a half hour. So it's really like seven half hours. But in any event, when you do a show here in England, traditionally, because there are not so many episodes, you, you cross board the entire series, meaning you shoot it like a feature. So your first day on the set, you might the first scene might be scene four from episode three, and then you move on to scene two from episode one, and mm. then scene five from episode four, or whatever, uh, because all of those scenes maybe take place in the same place. So um, it's a little different that way, um, but uh, it is different from anything I've done before. You know, I've always been a bit of a moving target, uh, whether it be documentaries or features or TV series. I just like to pursue whatever interests me at that moment. I don't have a big kind of career goal about what I want to do. It's project by project. And this was an idea that I had out of the blue. In fact, I was driving down the freeway in Los Angeles where I live. I was going to visit my mother. And for just a, a brief second, I noticed a guy in a car next to me to my right and driving that car was a guy who looked a bit like nick frost he looked like a very conservative nick frost with a very short haircut what we call in the states a crew cut i don't know Mm. if you have the same thing out here but a popular haircut in the 50s and 60s he had these kind of retro horn rim glasses and he was wearing a jacket and tie so he looked like nick frost if he were an accountant say in you know the 60s yeah a very conservative accountant and my wife wasn't with me in the car that day, so I had no other distractions or anything to talk about. So I started to think about that, you know, what would Nick Frost be as an accountant in the 50s? And it all grew out of that moment. As a matter of fact, although you've, you've, uh, your Empire has written about this, so I'm repeating things that were already in, in your print version, is I had my iPhone with me and I started to talk the idea into the phone. And even the title, the name of the character, Jeremy Frost, and the title of the series... I mean, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm mixing his real name with his fictional <laughs> name. Uh, Jeremy Sloan is the name of the character. With an E. With an E. Like, like Sloan Square. Like Sloan Square. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and the title of the show, Mr. Sloan. And I just started to talk it into the phone. And what's amazing, and it's still on my phone, and it's got a date and time stamp, so you can actually see the moment of the birth of Mr. Sloan. <laughs> the idea that I talked into the phone off the top of my head is very much what the show became. So it really just came out of the blue, and I don't know where it came from, but I'm thankful for it. Absolutely. So the, as the idea was he was a man almost out of time. The idea he was at the, uh, at the fag end of the 60s. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, he's still... he's. Uh, in, in other words, I think that the, the, the um, slogan that they're using for the show was the 60s didn't swing for everybody. Mm. And uh, so, yes, this is 1969, and it's, you know, it's it's the sort of pinnacle of 
the swinging 60s and swing in London and uh, swinging England. And Sloan is just, not, he's of a different generation. He's not part of that scene at all. Of course, he lives in Watford. So I don't know that anybody in Watford was really experiencing the swinging <laughs> anything. You know, I speak to people who are either around back then who lived in those towns or let's say their parents' generation was yeah. around in the 60s. And they say nothing was swinging. We, you know, every <laughs> night was the same thing they did decades previously, you yeah. know, maybe with a little time out for a world, world war here or there. But uh, that, uh, you know, they were in the pub every night or, you know, watching telly in the evening and, you know, pretty much seeing their mates and doing what they always did. So, so nothing was swinging. So that idea appealed to me that um, these guys, despite what's going on culturally, are all still in that rut, so to speak. Mm. And they all, there's a running theme through the show that they all talk about getting out of Watford and doing something exciting. And, and as, a, as a group, these four mates, uh, Sloan and his three mates, they've actually never gone into town. They've never gone into London yeah. together. They're always talking, let's just go to London. Let's go to London. Let's have some fun and have a crazy weekend. And they just never do it. And in the final episode they finally take off for London. Whether they get there or not, we'll have to watch and find out. But no, I really wrote a story that I felt was kind of a universal story about friendship, about loyalty, about you know loss and renewal and mm. all of that. Now, it took place in England. It wound up being Watford, which was a town I chose um, after doing a bit of research and that Watford seemed to tick all the boxes of what I wanted to say about this place and town. By the, by the way, I'm not putting down Watford at all, um, and I've been there once, and uh, it <laughs> seemed lovely. Uh, so we're not making fun of Watford at all, but it just represents, again, one of those towns outside of London where you know, some people just never leave oh, yeah. town. They talk about it or they, they work within town and never really venture outside. So that was sort of the spirit that I... I wanted here, but I wrote a story and I wrote characters that I thought could really be placed anywhere. As far as getting the details right about that particular time and place, there are enough British eyes on the show. Okay. Uh, I mean, this is a co-production between my company, Wyduck Productions, and Big Talk. Mm. And Big Talk had uh, researchers and just, you know, the executives who looked at it would tell me if I got some terminology wrong or whatever. I know in the pilot in the first episode there's a scene that takes place in a pub and at one point I had a waitress bringing them food and and uh, and everyone no 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 this <laughs> they said you're thinking about the modern day gastro pubs a pub in Watford in 1969 there'd be not only no food there'd be no waitresses you know yes. there'd be the bar barmaids that would clean the tables but yeah. so there was a certain learning curve and um, every time I had a specific question like if somebody called uh, you know, directory assistance for a phone number back then, how would they answer the phone mm. in 1969? Or how would, what would you say when you picked up the phone if it rang? Those kinds of questions came up all the time. And there was somebody at, at Big Talk uh, who I could always call and give that answer to, give that question to and get an answer back right away. So, so again, there are enough British eyes on it to keep it um, accurate as to time and place. Okay, because it feels so gloriously authentic at times. So not only the fact that he answers his phone going Watford, and then says yeah, the Watford 0579. Uh, yes, but, but pe people are quite surprised when they when they see it and they say, how does a guy who grew up in Orange County, California, who, by the way, was nine years old in 1969, <laughs> you know, write this piece, which which actually feels like such a British show that I worry about whether it's going to sell in the States, right. you know, because I'm afraid they'll say, oh, well, it's too British. It's, it's too British. I wrote the thing. I'm a you know, <laughs> middle-aged Jew from Fullerton, California. Come on. <laughs> 
Yeah, but it's uh, some of the references uh, to take me, take me by surprise. I love the, the touch of the fruit machine in the pub. Which yeah, is the fruit machine I, in the pub, yeah. I remember that. And also, yeah. by the way, in episode two, there is a joke that if this plays in the States, nobody is going to laugh. Nobody is going to get it. There's actually a reference to Quatermass in the Pit. Oh, yes. In episode yes. two. Yes. Which is something I had to research, and it uh, <laughs> sort of served the purpose I was looking for. But, boy, talk about things that... And there's a, there's a joke in uh, the pilot episode that uses the word spanner mm-hmm. in both its uh, definitions, which yes. is unknown in the States. So there are a few things that people will scratch their head at in the States. But, but was spanner known to you at the time? Or did that come No. In fact, that particular joke was contributed by Ollie Lansley and I told Ollie I said if you've contributed nothing else to the show which by the way he (laughs) contributed a lot more both he and Ash I said that joke alone and I can't give away how it plays out but it's in the first episode it's when he meets his wife played by the wonderful uh, Olivia Coleman um there's a spanner joke and I said you know that joke alone was worth your your salary (laughs) are you an Anglophile Bob well, you know, I, I was here for a solid year when I did the the, uh, the picture How to Lose Friends and uh, Alienate People with Simon Pegg. I spent a year here. That I was here for seven months doing this series. You know, it's not so much about being an Anglophile as, although I am, I suppose. I mean, I really love this country. It's become my home away from home now. And I, I always, whenever it comes up that I'm going to get to come to London again or go to England, I'm always very excited about it. I love spending time here. But you do soak you do soak it up eventually. As a matter of fact, when I go back to the States after being here for an extended period, I sort of have to get debriefed on the vernacular because I'll go home saying lift instead of elevator or bin <laughs> instead of trash can or whatever. And I, I'll say lift and people will look at me and I'll say, oh, I'm sorry, elevator. I, I forgot where I am. So I'm I'm. I'm sort of becoming cross-cultured that way, and it's getting a little bit confusing. As long as you don't drive in the left. Yeah, that, that would be a, a fatal mistake, literally <laughs> and it figuratively. Be. And Bob, I'll have to let you go, but um, I'm always fascinated, and I didn't ask you this last time you were in, in uh, production company names. And your production company mm. is Wyaduck. Right. Why Wyaduck? My first film, when I was a mere lad of 22, was a documentary on the Marx Brothers, because they were my first loves of cinema. I discovered the Marx Brothers in junior high school. So when I formed a production company to make my Marx Brothers documentary, I called it Wyaduck Productions, which is a reference to an old Marx Brothers routine from their movie uh, Coconuts, where Groucho is explaining to Chico how to get to this auction. He says, you'll come to a river, you'll cross a bridge, and you'll see a viaduct. And Chico says, well, why a duck? Why no chicken? You know, in an <laughs> Italian accent of his. So I called the company Why Duck Productions, figuring I'd dissolve it after the film and then start a new company. But people remembered the name. Even if they forgot my name, they remembered Why a duck. I thought, well, why get rid of a good thing? So I've, I've kept that name to this day. Excellent. Was there any connection to YD? Why? No, although my gag answer to that question for a long time, people would say, what's Wyaduck? And I'd say, well, that was actually my family name in the old country before we came <laughs> to Ellis Island and they changed it to Whitey because Wyaduck was so... And people have believed that. And that actually wound up in print somewhere. I thought I better back <laughs> off of that. Amazing. Amazing. Well, Bob, it's been an absolute pleasure. Bob Whitey with an E. Like Whitey Square. That's right. Thank you so much Whitey for joining us. Hopefully after this series airs, there will be a Whitey Square erected somewhere <laughs> in London, so I can use that line. We will have one named in your honor. Thank you, Chris Hewitt, Guaranteed. with no E. No E, sadly. But there you go. Thank you so much. Thank you. You bet. Thank you. Bob Whitey there. And now it's time to find out what's worth your cash at your local Cineplex this weekend. It's a fairly packed week, I guess. Uh, let's start with the biggie. The return of Schmidt and Jenko, a.k.a. Jonah Hill and Janine Tatum. Him again in 22 Jump Street. What did we make of this? Ali, as our resident Lord and Miller expert. 
as a resident Lord Miller. Uh, go. I love how their production company is Lord Miller. Lord Miller Productions. Uh, anyway, yeah, I'm a big fanboy, and if you listen to the Lego podcast, <laughs> i.e. the podcast where I natted on about the Lego movie for about 45 minutes, I'll try not to do the same again, but I am very, very happy with this film. I was obviously very excited about it because I love the first film. I actually felt when I watched the first film, 21 Jump Street, again for the second time, it didn't quite have the depth that I maybe wanted it to have, mm. and I obviously had a few quibbles with the Lego movie. This one, I think, is their best film yet, uh, better than Cloudy with a Chance of Evils, and better than the first. It has a few moments where I go, oh, this is lulling a bit in the, in, in the middle. But by and large, this is a thorough, positive, double thumbs up uh, endorsement for the film. But just to set up the plot of a sort, you know this is Jonah Hill, obviously, in Channing Tatum. They are officers Schmidt and Jenko. They go undercover, this time not at a school, not at a high school where they're, where they're selling drugs. They go to a college where they're selling drugs and uh, have to bust this uh, racket. Jenko, uh, this is... Channing Tatum meets a kindred spirit on the American football team while Schmidt uh, infiltrates the art scene which has a very very brief cameo from the submarine star who I forget the name of he's in it for about two seconds it's quite strange oh yeah Craig Roberts yeah he's in it just for honestly two that's seconds that's right he doesn't appear again there are so much in this film which I feel was cut away and put on the on the, on the you know on the cutting room floor because there was just so much going on this is a film and I'm just going to give you a few tidbits that has not one but two blink and you'll miss them Annie Hall lobster jokes hmm. incredible stuff there is a blink and you'll miss it Benny Hill joke and I'm mentioning this to you not to spoil the jokes for you but so you can look out for them because you will not necessarily spot them the first time around the Benny Hill joke now it's out there is for me the best visual joke of the year it destroyed me it reminds me of how we don't see that much visible that much visual humour where you really play around with what you're seeing and things come in at different angles there was a video essay on how Edgar Wright does it and having watched that you should check it out on Vimeo it's very good it's interesting to see 22 Jump Street and how they incorporate not just the this is a funny script look at how the jokes work everything comes together it's a flurry of imagination and enthusiasm that again we saw in the Lego movie Captain Dixon from the first film played by Ice Cube formerly of this podcast we love Ice Cube Maybe not in certain films, but in this one, he is in amazing. He in is every so funny. He has such a important part. He comes in a little later on, but he is so funny. He has about two scenes where he just storms it. There are out-of-reality uh, sound effects that they use really well. There's a moment where a microwave pings, uh, which will certainly m- made me uh, want to possibly run to the toilet and... and uh, and splash water in my face because I was essentially locked in a rictus grin of laughter. Uh, it was a very enjoyable film. Like I said, the middle act is a little bit squiffy. The final act, which really amps up the action, goes full crank. I <laughs> loved it. <laughs> there is a fight sequence, two fight sequences, which are so crank-esque that I just desperately want there to be a crank spin-off starring Channing Tatum as Chev Chelios's cousin, Bev Chelios Uh, extraordinary I won't say who hits what with whom or what but there are some improvised fight sequences I didn't think there was a a loose actor in it I think everyone was on their A game and there were stories written by Jonah Hill just a little bit of background here because Chris I know you like this film too but this is kind of going to break your brain a bit you don't like the film Project X do you? I know I know exactly what you're going to say and it's co-written this film is co-written by Michael Bacall I know and he co-wrote Project X. It's extraordinary. The story was written, Jonah Hill and Michael Bacall, but it was written by three other people. Mm. Well, Michael Bacall and two other people. And it's produced by Jonah Hill and Channing Tatum. So it really is a family affair. You, It just screams as you watch it that everyone is loving every second of them making it. He's also, and this is the biggest point, I know Helen will, will want to comment on this too, 
thoroughly and delightfully self-aware. It is meta beyond oh what you were expecting. In the trailer, we saw that funny joke where you see uh, their boss at the precinct, who's played so wonderfully by Nick Offerman with his wonderful big tash. He essentially goes, for reasons beyond my comprehension, they've decided to restart the Jump Street program and give it even more money with the intention that it will do better because of it. Look at camera. Uh, you think, oh, that'll be a throwaway gag. They actually dance around that quite a lot. And what they say about not only comedy sequels, but action sequels and comedy action sequels is very, very funny. We talked the other week about comedy sequels that worked or didn't work. Mm. People mentioned you know, quite a few that actually did. Adam's Family was one, obviously. This one is the king of the hill now. I think this is much better than yeah. the first, and the first is very good indeed. Look at the cameos. Are there cameos? Yes, there are a couple of cameos, but not to the extent that you maybe got a bit sick of in mm. A Million Ways to Die in the West. Mm. Yeah. And they're certainly not like superstars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, 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 it's, it's not a movie that lives and dies uh, on its cameos. Uh, I love this movie. I think it's the funniest film of the year. Thank God I saw that. Oh God, I saw A Million Ways to Die in the West or half of it a week ago. I thought comedy had died. And it's not. And it seems so weird that the week after we... Um, uh, had that conversation about are there any great comedy sequels is there anything really and then this this comes along and blows that, uh, that that theory out of the water there is a great comedy sequel in this it's fantastic it's a great sequel about sequels as you said it's also a fantastic movie about rom-coms it, it's <laughs> really funny the way it treats the Jenko and Schmidt relationship great subplot where um, where Jenko uh, meet cutes with another guy uh, Sook played by Wyatt Russell Kurt Russell's son who looks so much like Kurt Russell at times that I was waiting for it to dovetail into a Thing sequel. Uh, if you if you need to pick up the story of MacReady uh, 30 years on, or just, you know, as if it had just started five minutes ago, then this is the guy to go to, I think. Dye his hair, you're good. But it's so funny, there's a great meet-cute, and there's a lovely twist in the relationship as uh, Schmidt gets jealous of this guy, and, and, and Suk and Jenko are going through this wonderful romantic relationship, and it, it the gay subtext of this film is, is not just <laughs> in not your face. Subtext. It's not even a subtext. It's so in your face. Uh, it's so much fun as well, and Jonah Hill in particular... <laughs> plays it so so well uh, there's, uh, I love the walk of shame jokes I loved yeah. everything about this film um, it, it does have a little couple of dips now and again but it's so full of joy so full of invention and so full of laughs loved it I think we also need to single out Channing Tatum who plays dumb better than any man alive now I know what you're going to think when I say that he's not playing he totally is playing this is a smart a secretly smart guy he just looks like a big dumb jock and he plays that for all it's worth um, in the the microwave scene, which you'll know exactly what I mean when you see it. And I don't want to spoil it. Um, it is particularly well done. But just throughout, there's there are things that man says and reactions that man has that are miraculously funny, and they're funnier for being understated and underplayed. Um, he he's he's absolutely flawless here. I would agree that there are some dips. I didn't find the uh, Rob Riggle and Dave Franco scenes terribly funny. I thought that was a, a one joke that, that was stretched a little bit too far. But the meta nature of this and the endless commentary on the crapness of sequels is genius. Um, I don't know how you do a 23 Jump Street after this, but I imagine you just have to do make it even more meta and even more ridiculous. I pitch a franchise swap around. Neville Dean and Taylor do 23 Jump Street. Lord and Miller do Crank 3. I am on board. <laughs> I cannot, I could not be more on board with that. I'm so excited about that. Can you Make imagine Chev Chelios being meta? I mean, I know he put two middle fingers up whilst he was on fire at the end of Crank 2, but <laughs> imagine that with like a Lord and Miller aesthetic. Can you imagine the tagline? He was dead, but he got meta. <laughs> Chris, I could kiss you. <laughs> I'd rather you didn't. Yeah, you got a beard. Huh? You got a beard. Ugh. 
lovely romantic relationship here in the pot booth. I, I want to investigate other podcasts. It's like Jenko and Schmidt. Anyway, let's do another review. Uh, uh, that, that one was was yes. quite enthusiastic. Yes, and we gave it four stars. Uh, we have given it four stars. I would actually kind of tip into the fifth star oh, zone. Shushy. I would. I seriously would. I seriously would. You can't throw. Uh, you, we're throwing around uh, words like the greatest comedy sequel. Well, I'm doing it. I'm doing it now. <laughs> funniest, the year. funniest film of the year. Funniest film of the year, hands down. I don't want to overcook this because I feel like you've got to go walk into the cinema going, look, I'm aware it's not necessarily perfect. You're right. It's shit. Going with terrible. lower, ex- dreadful, it's dreadful, dreadful film. Go and see the dreadful. Film. One it, star. It's only June, so there may be there may yet be funnier films. And if there are, we're in for a really good. Well, year. look, my Who's Line movie is going to be off <laughs> the chain. Party quirks. Yeah. Phil, during our, our live party quirks game, played a man who thinks he's a horse. How was that for you, Phil? It was good, but I had to leave the party because it wasn't subtitled. <laughs> Precisely. Or in black and white. Was it, Phil's you opening line a was. terrible party. He said, "I would like an apple, please." Well, I don't know how you're supposed to play a man who thinks he's a horse without giving it away immediately by asking for, like, straw or a manger or a stable. But you make horse noises all day when you're working. <laughs> I do make horse noises all day, yeah. So maybe I am that man. Maybe I could have just turned up as per normal. <laughs> Hi, I'm Phil. Hi, everyone. I'm Phil. Oh, you're a man who thinks he's a horse. Oh, God. Doesn't your name actually mean lover of horses? Yeah, it does, actually, weirdly. So really? Say it's yeah. It does. Type, typecasting. Sorry about that, really Phil. No idea. My first name, not my surname. All right. Um, now let's move on to another movie that's out this week. Should you choose to go and see it, it's entirely up to you. It's Grace of Monaco, the movie that took the Cannes Film Festival by storm recently. The second necess- funniest film of the week. Yes. Just not necessarily the way that uh, it was hoped. It's directed by Olivier Dehaene and stars Nicole Kidman. I believe that's right. As Grace Kelly, as she goes through a tumultuous relationship with her husband, Prince Rainier of Monaco, played by Tim Roth, formerly of this chair. No, he sat there, actually. No! no his chair. Oh, man, this chair is so rocking. Uh, okay, so what do we think of this one? Uh, I'm going to turn to Helen yeah. of Coleraine? Port, Port Stewart. Stewart. Port Stewart. Helen of Port Stewart. Uh, yeah, this is, uh, this is not what we were hoping. I think everybody, after seeing the ridiculous Diana last year with Naomi Watts, was, was thinking, well, hopefully... Nicole Kidman, as another blonde princess in Grace of Monaco, will be able to restore the dignity and reputation of uh, Australian actors playing royalty. Uh, sadly, it turns out not to be the case. This is this is a mess. Um, I read one review that said it had um, it was like watching a ninety-minute Chanel advert, but without the the depth. And that's that's fair. That is genuinely fair. So this sees. Um, Grace Kelly on the throne of Monaco, married to Prince Rainier. Alfred Hitchcock's trying to get her back into action and get her to take a role in, uh, I think it was Marnie. Obviously, her husband is against that because it's an, it's not really done for a princess to have a job. Meanwhile, he's caught up in a sort of a controversy where France is trying to tax the poor people of Monaco. I say the poor people, they're all rich. Um, and, uh, and he's trying to fight this. And uh, Grace basically finds herself... The idea is that she has to become a better princess in order to somehow solve this diplomatic crisis so then what we see is um, Derek Jacobi as a sort of a gay Yoda figure <laughs> teaching her etiquette and, and how to be a princess which it seems bizarre that she would have been on the throne for what a decade at this point and uh, and suddenly be having princess lessons um, she's also got a, a sort of a, a disapproving housekeeper played by Parker Posey who's, who's always very cross that she doesn't follow etiquette so you would think that Parker Posey at some point would have said hey here's how things are supposed to to be done anyway this is princess diaries helen it's not 
I mean, honestly, The Princess Diaries has charm and and some sense of of pace and and also some sense of you know likability. This just doesn't have any of these things. The, the problem is essentially what we're being asked to to do here is to identify with the very very rich entitled royals and millionaires who make Monaco their tax haven. Uh, and and I'm not. I am going to spoil this. The the speech she gives at the end of the film is all about how true love conquers all, and therefore the French shouldn't tax millionaires. In this day and age, that seems a bizarre note to I end. I can get on. on board with that. I mean, on the bright side, the costumes are great, but it's also shot in with endless close-ups of uh, of Grace's face uh, for no obvious reason, uh, and it just doesn't work on really any level. It's a, it's a sort of a uh, it, it will probably become a camp classic because it is occasionally just laughably bad, hmm. but it is it is a mess. It is an absolute mess. Uh, Tim Roth looks embarrassed for most of his uh, time on screen. Um, <laughs> you know, Nicole Kidman soldiers on, but she's on her own. Sounds like King Ralph. King Ralph again, I would say, is pacier and more charming. <laughs> There's not a single person this planet who wouldn't prefer to watch King Ralph. <laughs> the grace of Monica. I would absolutely watch King Ralph again instead of this. Anyway, we gave it two stars, which shows that we are generous and forgiving people. Yeah, but one of those stars was a tax break. <laughs> is that not fair? Just thinking of a shared universe. What about King Wreck It Ralph? <laughs> King Wreck It Ralph. I'll watch that. I would love for Wreck It Ralph to discover his brother in a spin-off game was actually John Gibbons' King Ralph. That would be amazing. Ooh. Ooh, Speaking be amazing. of King Ralph, we have a uh, a feature going up onto the website currently, looking at some bio. We have actually found some biopics that are worse than this film, one of which stars John Goodman. So head to oh, check what is it, it out. That might be a spoiler. No, you can tell us one. It's like Christmas Eve. You can open one present. Big Lebowski. The Babe. <laughs> the Babe. The Babe. The Babe. The Babe. The Babe. He plays Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth. Yes. That, oh, that's bad. Not okay. a good film. All right. Uh, two stars. I nearly said one star. One well, star for Grace Monica. You may have heard me say one star, yeah. uh, but Empire's review says two stars. Two stars. Uh, that's do a reverse 22 Jump Street and lower people's expectations going into lists. They'll be expecting something truly dreadful. So it's brilliant. It's brilliant. It's truly it's brilliant. Ph- phenomenal. It's Five stars. Classic. <laughs> uh, okay. And the other major release this week is Fruitvale Station, the harrowing true life tale of Oscar Grant, a young black man who was killed very publicly. Uh, by a transport cop in 2009. It launched a Sundance last year, also played a Cannes last year, uh, much more successfully than Grace Monaco did, and put both its star Michael B. Jordan, formerly Wallace from The Wire, and now The Human Torch in Fantastic Four, and its director Ryan Coogler, both of whom will reunite on the Rocky spin-off Creed at some point this year, on the map. Uh, Phil? Uh, really terrific. It's a film that, as you say, has been has been around for a little while, um, creating buzz like something out of The Swarm. Uh, Sundance last year, Cannes last year, I think it picked up awards, and rightly so. It's really, it's an excellent account of a day in the life of this this young kid, he's 22 years old, called, as you say, Oscar Grant, an Oakland, an Oakland guy with a young daughter and a girlfriend, played by uh, Melanie Diaz, who's very, very good as well. Set on December the 31st, 2008. Yeah, like the Trayvon Martin uh, incident, it's kind of a cause celebre of a guy that's unjustly um, gunned down in an incident that you see at the beginning of the film, which is bookmarked Carlito's way style by the incident itself and ends with the same. The opening shot is taken with actual footage on a camera phone of the incident. And uh, it, and then it spins back and shows you the build-up to it. And what I think it does beautifully is it 
doesn't necessarily expound. There's not a lot of exposition explaining everything. Everything in the character is delivered through um, through the way he interacts with his girlfriend, with his daughter, with his uh, ex boss who's fired him from the store, uh, the job that he really, really needs. Um, he's come out of prison, so you see the way he deals with his mother um, when she visits him there, and uh, some of the other gang guys that he falls out with, and. Throughout all of this, underpinning it, is just a fantastic performance Michael B. Jordan, who is, to my mind, one of the most talented actors uh, kind of develop, kind of emerging at the moment. And he's great. He just shows two sides to this character. He's got a volatile streak, and he's also got a kind of a kind and gentle and compassionate side to him as well. And Jordan can do both poles very comfortably. And uh, through this one performance, he makes this an incredibly affecting and moving. And angering piece of filmmaking i saw it on sunday morning and as it finished and you have those kind of post credits um i can never remember the names of the little exposition of what happened next mm-hmm. um, and you see the bart transport policeman who shot him what became of him and it was something of an injustice like trayvon martin um, the woman behind me let out a sort of whelp of, of, of kind of quiet rage mm. that there had been this miscarriage of justice. Look, you don't want to give too much away about the incident itself. That It isn't really the point. You know, you know what's coming because it sets it up at the very, very beginning of the film. The point is this man's attempt to break out of a difficult situation, you know, maintain his relationship with his daughter and his girlfriend and his mum. Mm. And it's just it's not cliched it's authentic and I think that's partly because Ryan Coogler who I think was 26 when he made this film his mother is a parole officer from Oakland he understands the vernacular he understands the 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 sort of the setting so well that he doesn't need to he doesn't need to kind of set it up in a very kind of clunky contrived way it's very natural it's very naturalistic you can't understand all the dialogue which was a complaint of the wire made of the wire often but i think that's that that for me just enhances the sense that you're actually in this world part of his life just for a 24-hour period and and it's beautiful and there's a great scene where he goes home and he confesses to his girlfriend that he had lost his job but two weeks previously so she's angry with him on two levels one that they don't have the money to you know provide for the for their daughter but secondly that he hasn't told her for two weeks very kind of intimate and beautifully written and beautifully played and i think that's uh, probably a, a fair description of the film which we gave four stars to indeed uh, four stars for fruitvale station uh and also out this week we have the uh entirely improvised uh very very low budget british comedy benny and jolene uh which stars craig roberts he's on screen more often in this one than he is in 22 jump street uh and uh, we gave that two stars it's it's fine it's okay it's uh, it's it's a movie whose ambition probably outweighs its delivery, but there's some promising, promising stuff in there. Uh, there's uh, Ty West's latest horror, The Sacrament, which uh, we gave four stars to. That's out on Monday. We might tackle that one in more depth uh, next week. Then we have The Dirties, which is presented by Kevin Smith. He had nothing to do with the film, but he likes it so much that he uh, he's attached his name to it. Uh, and that has been given three stars. And then there's four stars for Cheap Thrills. Uh, we don't have a lot of time to go into it, very, very sadly, but it's a, it's a very, very scuzzy, very, very sleazy black comedy uh, starring the likes of Ethan Embry and Pat Healy and David Koechner, uh, which is very, very good indeed. And there's a documentary about Pulp, which is out this weekend. It's a really, really packed week. Uh, uh, it's called Pulp, a film about life, death, and supermarkets, and that gets three stars. If you're a Jarvis Cocker fan, if you're a Jarvis Cocker completist, then do uh, go and see it. But the, the big films this week, the, the films of the week, are obviously 22 Jump Street, Fruitvale Station, and I would say Cheap Thrills as well. Uh, and that is it for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun. We'll be joined by Jean-Pierre Chunet. Thought you'd like that. 
because of the subtitles and stuff. Yeah. Uh, he's the director of... That is, this is a long title, isn't it? It's in English. It's a young and prodigious T.S. Spivet. There are no subtitles in the film. There are no subtitles in the interview, but by God, we'll put some on. Um, we'll also be joined by Ama Asante, the director of Bell, which is out next week. Uh, and she's a shoe-in for the hot director's list if we ever do it, Helen, which we never will. But should, you know. Yeah, if we did, we should. It's yeah. a great list. Um, we should also put Ryan Coogler in there, actually. Ryan Coogler, indeed. And technically speaking, Ama Asante was an actress first. Oh, yeah, I've met Ryan Cookery. Yeah, I know he's a very attractive hunk of man. Until then, <laughs> it's goodbye from Helen. Toodaloo. It's goodbye from Ali. Goodbye. It's goodbye from Phil. Sayonara. That's not the usual thing a man who thinks he's a horse says. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Got any apples. Got any apples, <laughs> as horses want to say regularly. <laughs> and it's goodbye from me. Speaking of Biggs Shilling, I'm off to host a screening of Evil Dead 2 at the Phoenix Cinema, that wonderful independent cinema in East Finchley tonight at 11.45. That's tonight, Friday. If you listen to this after Friday, it's not on. We're not there. It's empty. Go home. But it's Friday, June 6th. Do turn up if you can. Tickets are £9.50. Why not join me to see uh, an idiot waxy lyrical about the greatest film of all time? Uh, it's guaranteed to be groovy. See you next week. Bye.